Let me just say too, before I start this message, this is one of the ones that I've really looked forward to. This is one of the big guns. This is one of the turning points of this passage, of this, of this book. And man, it's, I am so excited about this. Louis Zamperini. Anybody ever heard that name? Huh? <laughs> Facebook? Well, he's dead, just so you know. <laughs> That's kind of creepy. Yeah. He was the son of Italian immigrants in Torrance, California. And he gained his initial fame as an Olympic distance runner in the 1936 Games. But ultimately, that's not what Zamperini was best known for. He enlisted in the United States Army Air Corps, Air Corps in September 1941 and earned a commission as second lieutenant. He was deployed to the Pacific Island of Funafuti as a bombardier on the consolidated B-24 Liberator bomber that was called Superman. In April of 1943, during a bombing mission against the Japanese-held island of Nauru, the bomber was badly damaged in combat. With Superman no longer flight-worthy and a number of the crew injured, the healthy crew members were transferred to Hawaii to await reassignment. Zamperini, along with some of the other former Superman crewmates, was assigned to conduct a search for a lost aircraft and crew. They were given another B-24, called the Green Hornet, notorious among the pilots as a defective lemon. On May 27, 1943, while on the search, mechanical difficulties caused the bomber to crash into the ocean 850 miles south of Oahu, killing eight of the 11 men on board. The three survivors, Zamperini and his crewmates, pilot Russell Allen, who they called Phil Phillips, and Francis Mac McNamara, with little food and no water, subsisted on captured rainwater, small fish eaten raw, and birds that landed on their raft. With the little tools they were able to salvage from the crash, the men were able to manage on a small, on a small raft that got released. They caught two albatrosses, which they ate, and used pieces as bait to catch fish, all while fending off constant shark attacks and nearly being capsized by a storm. Now, wow, if that was fiction, it'd be a great story. We're not done. They were strafed multiple times by a Japanese bomber, which punctured their little raft, but no one was hit. McNamara died after 33 days at sea, his friend Francis Mac McNamara. So after 33 days at sea, Mac died. To wish him a good life free from the war, he was wrapped up and sent into the sea. Now check this out. On their 47th day adrift... Zamperini and Phillips reached land in the Marshall Islands and were immediately captured by the Japanese Navy. Are you kidding me? They were held in captivity, severely beaten, and mistreated until the end of the war in August of 1945, two years later. Initially, they were held in a small camp and after 42 days they were transferred to the Japanese prisoner of war camp at Ofuna for captives who were not registered as prisoners of war. Now if you're not registered as a prisoner of war, what are you? You're as good as dead. And the Japanese knew that. Zamperini was later transferred to Tokyo's Amori POW camp and was eventually transferred to the Naetsu POW camp in northern Japan where he stayed until the war ended. He was tormented by prison guard Mutsuhiro Bird Watanabe, who was later included in General Douglas MacArthur's list of the 40 most wanted war criminals in Japan. Held at the same camp was then Major Greg Pappy Boyington. Everybody had a nickname in the military, didn't they, Steve? And Pappy's book, Baba Black Sheep, discussed Zamperini and the Italian recipes that he would write to keep the prisoners' minds off the food and conditions that they were in. Zamperini had at first been declared missing at sea, and then a year and a day after his disappearance, they declared him killed in action. When he eventually returned home, he received a hero's welcome.
there is a movie about this, but there's a book and a movie called Unbroken, and we watched it last night. And I can't suggest it for everybody because it's kind of rough in places, but my goodness gracious, to see what this man went through, literally, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually went through, off the charts. While in prison in Japan, Zamperini and his mates were told by Bird, this uh, prison guard, you are an enemy of Japan. You will be treated accordingly. And let's just say, accordingly is not good. Beaten, starved, humiliated, and mentally abused continually, the life of a POW was literally as bad as it could be. Zamperini said he would continually bring to mind something his brother had told him when he was training to compete back when he was a runner. And what his brother said was, if you can take it, you can make it. In 2014, the year of his death, Zamperini's story was told in the Hollywood movie Unbroken. Though brought to the point of death multiple times, Louis Zamperini did in fact take it, and ultimately he would make it. So the question is, on this Memorial Day weekend, how does all of this relate to us and to our journey through Romans? <clears throat> We're nearing the peak of our journey up this Everest-sized book. We've been climbing the mountain and we're getting up in rarefied air. We're at the end of chapter 7, we're headed toward chapter 8, which is the peak of the mountain. Let's look at what we got today. <clears throat> look at me, how smart am I? Huh? I got this. So we are in Romans, and we're going to read chapter 7, verses 14 through 25, if you would stand with us. Please stand out of respect for the Word of God and the God of the Word. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let me pray. God, we have two things to say as we start this message. First is thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. And the second thing that we have to say is, God, please help us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, illumine this scripture. Give us revelation so that we might see the truth contained and the power of that truth to be lived out through our lives. Thank you, God, and please help us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. All right, it's that point of the message where we review. I don't know when we started this. Anybody have any idea when we started this? It's been a while. Not quite a year, I don't think. But Anyway, in our journey we have seen the overarching theme of Romans is how to be right with God. Point one of our outline was chapter 1 through chapter 3 verse 20 and that showed us sin the need for being right with God and who had the need for being right with God the answer is everybody everybody ever born except Jesus Christ if you were born you have a need for being made right with God because you have inborn sin sin is in you then we got to point two which was justification by faith which carried us through the end of chapter 4 
Justification by faith is the means for being made right with God. There is no other way to be right with God than faith in the finished work of Christ. Somebody says, how can I be saved? You put your faith in what Jesus has done. And you trust that. And that is the only way to be saved. There is no other way. You don't work to do better. You don't try harder. You don't bite your lip and, and wake up earlier one morning and quit eating certain foods. It's not about you doing anything except trusting in what Jesus has done. He died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And you get to place your faith in that and say, God, I believe that you accepted His payment on my behalf. And that means you are justified. We'll get to that in a second. And that brought us to chapter 5 where we started to see blessings, the results of being right with God. And let me tell you what, when you are right with God, there are blessings involved. Anybody ever had a job where you had benefits? Well, I've had one. <laughs> uh, vacation is a benefit. Actually, all my jobs I've had vacation with. Uh, 401K, that's a benefit. I don't have that right now. Um, insurance, that's a benefit. Yeah, I don't have that either. Um, huh? Yeah, there you go. Three hots and a cot's the only benefit you need. So, once you're born again, once you've placed your faith in Christ, blessings start coming your way the results of being made right with God. And that's where we're at. We're near past the middle. But, but, but chapter 8 is so full of these blessings. Again, I don't want to jump ahead of myself. But. So that's where we're at. We're right now in the middle of blessings, the results of being made right with God. We've talked about Asian Station, and I'll briefly fly through this again. Expiation is the process of God taking the guilt of our sin away from us. That's kind of what we sang about this morning. How blessed is the man whose sins are not counted against him. That's expiation. I don't have guilt over my sin anymore. God took that from me. And what he did was he took my sin, he put it on Jesus who became my propitiation and he propitiated me and Jesus when Jesus was on the cross which means that he vented his anger upon the person of Christ. You sinned, therefore the wrath of God abides on you Jesus stood in your place and said, and I tell my kids all the time, what if you do something wrong and your brother or sister says, you know what, don't spank him, spank me. And that's an oversimplification, but that's exactly what Jesus said. He paid the penalty for what I did wrong. And he became my propitiation. He became the place where I could meet with God because God's anger was spent on him. And that's a lot. And I pray that God would help you understand that. Imputation is... Okay, He took my sin away from me. He put it on Jesus and punished Jesus for it. Imputation is He took Jesus' righteousness, perfection, sinless life, and He gave that to me. I have been imputed or given the very righteousness of Christ. That's mind-blowing, by the way. Which led us to a state of justification, which means I can stand in God's presence, just like we said this morning, and say, I belong here. I I have the right to be here. I'm justified, and that's a judicial sentence. God said, justified. You have the right to be in my presence now. That's overwhelming. And we should, man, we should really, we're going to add an Asian in a few weeks, but right now we're going to say justification. Then we start the process of sanctification, which is living it out. That's just as simple. You don't try to earn your salvation through sanctification. You just start to live out what God's put in you. And then... Before the foundation of the world we were saved. At one point in time we were saved. We are being saved and one day we will finally and fully be saved. That's salvation. Anybody ever been saved from something? Been saved from the wrath of God is what we've been saved from. And this all revolves around our union with Christ. Listen, as a believer you have been placed in Christ. You have been made one with Christ. We were crucified with Him. We died to sin. So when He was crucified, we were crucified with Him. His experience became our experience. And that's really tough to wrap your mind around. Pray about it. Think about it. Meditate on it. Search the Scriptures about it. We will be raised with Him one day. And boy, we're going to talk about that some today. So that we might walk in newness of life. Now, all of this is so we can do what we talked about this morning, which is let your light shine before men in such a way that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is for the glory of God, that we might walk in newness of life. Now, not smuggle our souls into heaven, 
hopefully one day at the end of time, but right now. It's about now and into the future. Quick review about, because it, you have to know this to understand Romans 7. Romans 4 talked about us being justified by faith. We've already mentioned that. Chapter 5, we saw that we have peace with God. Chapter 6, we see that we have freedom from sin, that we died to sin. At the beginning of chapter 7, we saw that we died to the law. And in chapter 8, we'll see what it means to be controlled by, empowered by the Holy Spirit. But in Romans 7, I said this last week, it's kind of like a hiccup. This, this Verses 14 through 25 is kind of like, like he's going, this is great, this is wonderful, this is great, this stinks, this is great, 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 great. So in the middle of it, he's going, there's a problem here. Why is this in here? Because it seems to depict failure, loss, and hopelessness from what we read in 14 through 25. What does it mean? If you remember two weeks ago, if you were with us, and we're almost done reviewing, stay with me. We looked at this passage, Romans 7, 14 through 25, and we asked the question, is Paul referring to a believer or a non-believer in this passage? And we said, though valid arguments could be made for each side, I am teaching from the perspective that Paul is speaking as a believer when, when we read these verses. And, I, and again, there's more proof as to why I believe that in what we'll talk about today. That's important to keep in mind because... We could really get derailed if we don't understand that. And then last week, we saw that sin, where does sin live? Remember from last week? Sin lives in my flesh. Paul said as a believer that sin lives in his flesh. And the three application points from last week, which I'll reiterate again because we still need to be applying them, is we have to own our sin. We have to disown our sin even while it's there, and we have to understand that the new I, remember the new I that we talked about last week? The new I, me, is empowered by the Holy Spirit of God Himself. And that really sets the stage for today where we will focus on verses 21 through 25. And at the end of this review, I want to reread a quote from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones that I read two weeks ago because this is super duper pertinent to what we're going to talk about today. This is what he says. The theme of this volume, and he's talking about 7, 14 through 25, the theme of this volume is no mere fascinating theological or intellectual problem, but one of vital importance to Christian experience and to the health, well-being, and vigor of the church. And then he says this, to end a reading of Romans 7 in a depressed condition is to fail to understand it. So, if we get to the end of this passage today and you're depressed, I have either miscommunicated it or you have misunderstood it. So, with all that in mind, especially that last thought, which was to end a reading of Romans 7 in a depressed condition is to fail to understand it. Let's dive into verse 21. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Okay, so, picking up from where we left off last week, we start with what word? What's the first word on the board up there? So, so what? So, we start with so. Not a needle pulling thread. So, the word so implies that something happened before that concluded with this. As in, basically as an explanation, I've got a briar in my thumb, so it hurts. Okay, Because this happened, this is happening. Are you with me? Out of our conclusion last week, we saw that sin dwells in our flesh. So since that is true, so... I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Sin lives in my flesh, so I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Since sin lives in my flesh, it causes me problems. That's the relationship we have here. So, what? 
Since I have sin living in my flesh, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now the mention of law here is not the same law as God's law, but rather, what is a law? It's a principle. Pop quiz. If I drop this cup a hundred times, how many times will it fall to the floor? We're not going to go to a hundred. But how many times would it ever go up to the ceiling if I let it go? Why? Gravity. Gravity is a law. It's something that proves to be true over and over and over and over and over. What if I throw it really hard? Still goes to the floor. It's a law. It's a principle that cannot be violated. Now, can gravity be overcome? Yeah, but you've got to use force to overcome it. But the law of gravity holds true, so planes flying in the air don't disprove the law of gravity. So Paul is saying here, there's a law. Something that proves itself true over and over again like gravity. Paul seems to be using the word law here to play with words to drive home the conflict between God's law, which is pure and holy, to the law of conflict in the born-again believer. Two laws, both bringing conflict and struggle to this new man. And here, what proves to be true time and time again, like that cup falling, no matter how we throw it, the same thing that, tends to be, that proves to be true time and time again is the fact that when Paul... Now listen, please hear this. When Paul, and as such, when we want to do right, what's the law? Evil lies close at hand. I would say it's as close as your hand. Because when, where does sin live? Let me ask you that again. In our flesh. And that's very important if we're going to understand the fight we are fighting and how to best fight it. When we were born again, <clears throat> reaching back to last week, we were given a new eye, not, not visual eye, me eye, personal eye. We were given a new eye, and that new eye wants to do good. But along with the new eye that wants to do good, your flesh is still there. It wasn't removed or vaporized. You didn't transform into a different creature outwardly. The flesh is still there and we have to deal with it. Anybody ever see that video, that little kid, deal with it? Look it up. Take my word for it. Look it up. It's funny. He does a little rap. He got in trouble. He said, now I got to deal with it. Deal with it. Our flesh is still here and we have to deal with it. So the law will prove true how many times out of a hundred? Anytime I try to do good, what's going to happen? Evil lies close at hand. A hundred times out of a hundred. It's a law. Until the flesh is delivered and glorified, which will happen one day, when it will be new and then it will be obedient to the inner nature, and the two of them, the inner nature and the outer nature, work together, until that happens, the born-again believer has a desire, the new eye gives you a desire to do right. And in connection with that, listen Christian, sin living in your flesh lies close at hand and it has opposite desires. Now, I don't know how to personify sin. What is it? What is it that's living in your flesh? It's a force. It's a power. It's an entity. You're not demon-possessed. That's not it. I don't want you to get that mentality. There's just something in your flesh that wants what it wants. It's that carnal nature we talked about last week, that animal instinct that just wants what it wants. Can I get an amen about that? Yes, yes, every day I just want what I want. I just want. There's something in us, and it's a law that proves true any time I want to do right. So the born-again believer is in constant battle between the new eye and what the new eye wants and what sin living in the flesh wants. Now get a hold of that because it is a law that proves true a hundred times out of a hundred. Now, 
As a believer, do you want to do right? As a believer, is sin living in your flesh and doesn't want to do right? Yes. Very important moving forward. I'm trying to get fancy here. Verses 22 and 23. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. This was a turning point in my study here. This, this was fresh for me. This was new for me. Verse 22, let me go back to it. Verse 22 helps prove to me again that this passage is talking about a born-again believer. This man delights in the law of God in his inner being. That word for, de for delights means to rejoice together with or to rejoice or delight with oneself or inwardly. To rejoice inwardly. So this person, deep within them, rejoices in the law of God. It doesn't say that he tries to keep it. It doesn't say that he's marking off a list. It says, I joyful, I rejoice in the law of God in my inner being. Again, this is not a sinner who is dead in their sins and trespasses, angry with God or in rebellion against Him. This man loves God and His law and he delights in that law. That's who Paul is saying he is in his inner being. But verse 23 juxtaposes this inner man with someone or something else. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law. Now see again the word play with law and law. The law of God and the law in his members. And here, members means a limb of the human body. Your arm is a member of your body. Your head is a member. Your leg is a member. And that's exactly what he's referring to. He's, he's saying here, the parts of my body are waging war against me. So I'll ask again, where does sin live? In my flesh. Not your body. Your body and your flesh, though enmeshed, are not the same thing. Your body is to be presented to God as a living sacrifice. That's Romans 12. But don't give up hope on your body, but understand that sin resides in your flesh, which is in your body. I think it's real important. In these members, in this flesh, there is a law waging war with the law of His what? I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind, which is your inner person. So the outer person is wrestling with the inner person. That's basically the picture I want you to get here. In his mind, in his inner person, he delights in the law of God. But the sin in his flesh, listen, is warring against that godly law and his delight in that law. And note the phrase, waging war. There is a war going on between the inner man, the new eye, and the law of sin which resides in the flesh. And that's not true of an unbeliever. But this is the daily struggle of the born-again believer. The life of a believer is a life of waging war. But look at how this war takes place. Who or what is waging the war here? What's the text say? I see in my members another law, verse 23, waging war against the law of my mind. So whose way or what, who or what is waging war against what here? This other law in his members is waging war against the law of my mind. Well, what was he rejoicing in in his mind? The law of God. So... The law in his members is waging war against the law of his mind. Now, do you see the offensive action of that? Who's taking the offensive action here? The law in his members. So this is not some passive thing that sin just kind of sits there and when it gets bumped into says, Hey, leave me alone. No. The law in his members is actively waging war against the law of his mind. 
the law and his members, which is sin. Sin is waging war against the new I. Sin is the aggressor here. And I want you to grab a hold of that. War is being waged. And the war is being waged by the sin in his flesh against his inner person. So if you were drawing a map, a battle map, who's advancing on who? The law of sin says, you know what? I declare war against you. Okay, World War II. What was America doing before Pearl Harbor? We're going to stay out of this. We're not. But what happened? Japan attacked Pearl Harbor December 7th, 1941, a day that will live in infamy. They were the aggressors. And they killed people. They bombed our aircraft carriers. And they drew us into this war. They brought us into the war by waging war against us. And I think it was Yamamoto said, we've awakened a sleeping giant. And they were right. And that war concluded how? We put two big craters in their countryside and killed a lot of people. Who was the aggressor? Japan was the aggressor. Who's the aggressor here? Okay, that's so important. That is so important to this passage. Sin is waging war against the new I. God shows up, gives a man new life in his inner being, the new eye, and this new person takes up residence where? In our body, right? Unfortunately, that body is not unoccupied. The occupant, sin, sees the new person and instantly declares war on what it sees as an intruder. What if somebody just moved into your house? Hey, what's up? We live here now. <laughs> no, you don't. You starting to write the checks for the mortgage? Even if you did that, you don't live here. This is my house. Sin has total control of this unregenerate person. God shows up, breathes life into him. There's a new creation, a new eye. And that new eye resides where sin resides. And sin says, uh-uh. You ain't moving in here. So sin wages war. The occupant, sin, sees the new person and instantly declares war on what it sees as an intruder. The new I is the rightful new owner by God's decree, but the old landlord, sin, refuses to leave. Ideally, the new I should not be tempted by the sinful desires as he has died to sin, as Paul states in Romans 6, 5-7. For if we have been united with Him, Jesus, in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. We said that body of sin was the proof of our sins, like a legal case, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now that's the ideal, right? That's the way it should be. We should be dead to sin. But does it say that sin is dead? No. It says we are dead to sin. So why is he, Paul, why are we tempted to sin? Why do we agree to give in to sinful desires that we are dead to? Which is the daily battle of why do we sin? Let me go back to verse 23 because I want you to see it. The end of verse 23 tells us, listen, get a hold of this, waging war against the law of mind, and making me, what's the word? Making me captive. What? What? Making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. There's a lot going on in that verse right there. Why do we sin? Why do we give in to sin? The end of verse 23 tells us, But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. 
The law of sin wages war against the law of my mind and makes me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Sin makes me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Sin starts waging war and takes me captive. The word captive means one taken in war. P-O-W. Prisoner of war. War was declared, war was fought, and captives were taken by sin. And I, the new I, was the one warred against, and I, the new I, was taken captive. In this instance, the born-again believer is a prisoner of war, taken captive by sin. That sucks. It does. Why would God do this to us? Why didn't He just save us and make us whole? Why? Verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Man, I have misunderstood this verse my whole life. Missed it. In his captive state, in his realization that he is in a war that he didn't declare and that he is a prisoner as the outcome of this war, Paul cries out, Wretched man that I am. Hear the angst, hear the despair, hear the conflict. Now what does the word wretched mean? The word wretched means enduring toils and troubles. The word wretched means afflicted. Let me tell you what he is not saying here. He is not demeaning himself, calling himself bad or wrong. He's calling himself afflicted and enduring trouble from being in a war and being made a prisoner of that war. And this is very important in my estimation. We tend to see our sin and what do we do about it? We blame ourselves. We beat ourselves up. And we talk about how bad we are. Instead of seeing ourselves as enduring toils and troubles, we instantly label ourselves bad and wrong. We see wretched as disgusting and yucky, like we are bad. But is the new I bad? The new I delights in the law of God. The new eye is the one who delights in the law of God and who wants to do right. But sin took that man captive and afflicted him. You see the difference? Can you imagine Louis Zamperini sitting in a Japanese prison saying, I'm such an idiot. I'm so stupid. I'm a bad person because I got caught by these Japanese. I'm a bad person. I need to do better. Of course not. That's crazy. He was being afflicted. He was being troubled by his captors. And that's the same picture here. The new man is captive, being troubled by his captor at war with an aggressor. But don't take it too far and take the path of a victim because that's the other danger. We can make ourselves feel bad and yucky and we're stupid or we can say, well, there's just no hope here. If you look at the end of the verse, this wretched, afflicted man doesn't say, Oh, woe is me, I'm such a louse and have no hope. No, he calls out for help. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Which in our picture of a POW is a way of saying, Who will spring me from this infernal prison? Who will set me free from my bondage? And that's the right question to ask. He does not say, oh no, what am I going to do? Or I'll try to do better from now on. No, he calls out for deliverance from outside himself to be set free from sin that dwells in his flesh, which is referred to as this body of death. And let me just say, help shows up in verse 25. Thanks be to God 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. Exclamation point. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So yeah, there's the glorious news of our Deliverer. Who will help me? Who will set me free? Who will show up and deliver me? The new I? And the answer is, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that should be all caps and boldened and underlined with 64 exclamation points after it. Do you see the answer to his question? Who will deliver me from this body of death? God will through Jesus Christ our Lord. Who will step in and do what needs done to make sure this wretched man is delivered from his oppressor? God will through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you don't see some lowly, groveling, self-pitying sad sack. You see a prisoner who lifts his eyes to see his rescuer swooping in to free him. He admits his wretchedness, his oppressed nature, and realizes that in and of himself he is doomed to suffer torment as a prisoner of war for the rest of his life. And he calls out for deliverance. And deliverance comes, capital D deliverance comes, in the form of a divine person. It's God Himself in the person of Christ who comes and sets Him free from His oppressor. Christian, hear this. You are justified by grace through faith. You have peace with God. You are dead to sin. You are dead to the law. You are joined to another. And yes, you are a new I living in a constant state of war between the new I and the sin that dwells in your flesh. But over and above all of that, God Himself in the person of Jesus Christ, has delivered you, is delivering you, and will finally and fully deliver you from the body of this death. It is as sure as the victory of Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died to sin once and for all on the cross. He came back to life never to die again. He ascended back into heaven and right now is sitting on the victor's throne at this moment and will only leave that throne for one purpose and that's to come and bring His bride, which is the church, to Himself so that we might be with Him for eternity, reigning and ruling with Him. And in the meantime, the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus has a purpose right now. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Did you catch that? He is able to save to the uttermost and He always lives to make intercession for us as believers. Do you know what that means? It means Jesus is for us Jesus is our deliverer. Jesus is our rescuer. He is saving us and will save us fully because His purpose in living is to make intercession for us. God in the flesh, crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, shown alive to over 500 people over a period of 40 days, ascended into heaven, sat down, and He serves one purpose now, and that's to intercede for His people. Which means to stand in our place, to do what we cannot do, to free us from what we are enslaved to. Listen to me, church. Jesus Christ has assumed full responsibility for us. Do you get that? We are one with Him. We share His life even now and we will for eternity. The gospel is really good news. Really, really good news. Even in the face of the end of verse 25 of Romans 7. Let me read this whole thing again. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
So yeah, there's the glorious news of our deliverer and our deliverance, but look how this verse ends. So then, I don't have any problems anymore ever. So then, all my zits clear up and my teeth straighten so I don't need braces. So then, my job is great and I never have money problems anymore. Or this one is my favorite. So then I can eat all the crispy creams I want and it never affects me poorly. Is that what it says? It's not what it says. Look at it. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind. Yay! But with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Say what? After that astonishing news of deliverance and joy, this is your response, Paul? And I think this is the ultimate proof that this passage is referring to a believer because the honest truth is, even in the midst of a dramatic deliverance and an all-powerful deliverer, I still serve the law of sin with my flesh. And it seems I always will. The new I loves and desires the law of God, but I still limp around in a sin-containing flesh that can, at times, pull me down like a boat anchor and lure me and deceive me into its service. The Christian person is truly a person at war with himself. We will fight sin all of our live-long days. Period. Sin will not go away. It will be living in our flesh as long as we are in it. Sam Albury said it well. The sign that the Spirit is powerfully at work in you is not that there's no battle with sin, but a huge battle with sin. The person that says, I'm okay, I'm fine, I'm doing better than I've ever done, I'm in good shape. The Spirit's not at work in that person. The person that says, I am at war with sin, and by the grace of God I'm overcoming more and more, that's a person where the Spirit's at work. That same person can say, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I am tormented and tested by this stuff that's constantly pulling me down. That's Christian maturity. The more mature we get, the fiercer the fight will be. But final, overall victory will not come until our foe is decisively, finally, and powerfully eradicated when sin is no more, when God dwells with man. John, the Apostle John, got a sneak peek of this. And I just want to read this passage for no other reason than just I just want you to see it, what it looks like when sin is no more. John says this in Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he's not done. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, this is God, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death." Sin's portion is with that stuff that will pass away. Sin, sin's portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur continually. Sin will die in the second death. And until then, Christians, we fight. We battle. We wrestle. 
we cry out and we find our deliverance in the person of Jesus Christ. And as long as we live in this flesh, we recognize that war has been declared against us while all the while knowing that our ultimate victory is as sure as the morning sun. Which brings us to our application points. First application point. Know the enemy. Christian, sin is your enemy. And sin has declared war against you. And sin lives in your flesh. And sin is far worse than you know. Sin hates you and the Savior who saved you. Sin is the worst enemy of the saint. You say, the devil made me do it. Listen, if you're arrogant enough to think that the devil has nothing better to do than torment you, you really are deceived. The devil can be in one place at one time. He's not, he's not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at one time. The devil is a created being who is on God's leash who can only do what God allows him to do. And I can almost guarantee you, ain't none of us in here important enough for the devil to be messing with himself. Now, maybe a demon, maybe a force of the enemy, maybe a scheme of the enemy, yeah. But you can't blame the devil for it. Sin is your enemy. Sin is the thing that you have to contest and fight against. That prison guard that they called Bird in that movie that Louis Zamperini talked about that hated him, he was despicable. And he was so cruel. He was so merciless. He was so... That is sin. Sin would tie you up and beat you to a bloody pulp if it could. Anybody see The Godfather? Don't watch it. It's awful. But there's a good line that says, To keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. Well, as born-again believers, we don't have a choice. Our main enemy is as close as our own skin. And that sin isn't going away as long as your flesh is a part of you and you are a part of your flesh. Your enemy will make you feel wretched, tortured, held hostage, and at times your enemy will deceive you and make you feel hopeless. This is the war that is being fought and that will be fought until you shed mortality and put on immortality in the new heaven and the new earth. And man, that would be super depressing if that was our only application point. But it ain't. Know your enemy. Know the enemy was application point one. Sin is your enemy. Application point two. Know the new I. So that's the same application point that we talked about last week. But it has to be said again. Know who you really are. You are a new creation. And in your innermost being, you desire to do the will of God. That's who you really are. And I just want to, out of these five verses that we just read, I want you to hear how Paul refers to himself. He says, I want to do right. I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I myself serve the law of God with my mind. That's how he refers to himself. That's the reality of the new I. This is who we truly are in our born-again state. That desire that you have to do what is godly is proof that God is working in you, that God's Spirit is in you, and that God is dealing with you. And listen, Christian, that's fantastic news. Yes, sin is there, but so is the new I. The true I. Know the reality of the truth of the new eye. It's as real as the sin that dwells in your flesh. It is the new eye, the true eye. This is who we really are, and it's imperative to know that. So know the enemy and know the new eye. That's two. Third application point and the last application point. Listen. Know the deliverer who is your victory. We have to know the enemy of our soul. We've got to know who we really are as the new eye. But most of all, 
we must know capital W who it is that will deliver us. Paul's declaration in verse 25 must be our rallying cry, our constant reminder. Just like Louis Zamperini preaching to himself over and over again, if you can take it, you can make it. If you can take it, you can make it. Our mantra, our truth is the gospel that we must preach to ourselves and that gospel is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Yes, I recognize sin. Yes, I know that I'm the new I. But ultimately, this is what matters. This is victory. Thanks be to me because I tried harder. Thanks be to the new I because he's a really good guy. Thanks be to sin that he finally gave up on me. That's never going to happen. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the midst of the hardest trials, in the most in intense temptations, the most wretched treatment by the sin in our flesh, we must remind ourselves and each other that God through Christ in us is more than able to sustain us, enable us, and help us overcome even the worst moments of our lives. We stood here this morning and we sang, We are more than conquerors. Why are we more than conquerors? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The good news of the gospel is, not only do you get a new you, you get Christ. And without Christ you're hopeless. Without Christ, there is no new eye. Without Christ, sin overwhelms and overpowers you without question 100% of the time. But this wretched, poor, afflicted man that I am has a deliverer. I don't want to ruin the end of the movie for you, but America wins the war. Okay? That happens. And what do you think happens to these POWs when America wins the war? They get freed. Again, not to ruin the movie for you, but Louis Zamperini gets freed and he goes home. And he gets married and he has kids. And he gets miraculously born again. And he becomes a flaming evangelist. Speaking at Billy Graham crusades and traveling all over the country. And the gospel that he preached over and over and over again is forgiveness through Jesus Christ. The movie don't tell that story too well. But there is a second movie that I can't remember the name of that tells his post-war Christian experience. I can't remember the name of it. I'm sorry about that. Louis Zamperini was afflicted and wretched in a prison camp in Japan. And he kept preaching the truth to himself. If I can take it, I can make it. And he endured incredibly awful things. And he serves as a picture for me. As I watched that movie last night, I'm like, this is it. I will struggle with sin. Sin will punch me in the face. Sin will torment and oppress me. Sin will try to convince me that they're never coming for me. Sin will try to convince me, he lied to you. That book that you read is a lie, but sin is a liar. Jesus has already won. Jesus will win. And praise God. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's my battle cry. Jesus died to sin once and for all and has overcome. And Jesus Christ is our victory here and now. We will struggle with sin our whole lives, but we will not be neglected. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Though our enemy has said that we will be treated according to our standing as the enemy, though our enemy has declared war against us, God has lavished Himself on us. And as such, we are more than conquerors. And let me tell you this, Christian, born-again believer, you will not fail because He will not fail. Did I say you'll never sin again? I did not say that. But one day, we will stand in His presence 
clean, pure, and holy because of the work of Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the artillery that you fight sin with. Anything else, you fail, you fall. You don't take it and you don't make it. Let's pray. God, there's a lot of things we don't understand. There's a lot of answers we didn't get today. But there is one thing we know for sure. You are God. We are not. You have given yourself to us through Jesus Christ so that we are more than conquerors. We will not fail. Yes, sin will dwell in our flesh until we see you face to face. But you have placed in us the new eye and the source of life of that new eye is Jesus Christ Himself. Your Word tells us that it is Christ in us that is the hope of glory. And we say yes to that. And we say thanks to God through our Lord Jesus Christ as a result. God, help us to know your power to save, to sanctify, and to fully deliver into your presence. You are able to do it. And we thank you for it through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and receive a benediction? Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, church, completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Thank you. You're dismissed.